Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and in this week's episode, Here Comes the Science Bit, I personally learn a couple of things about podcasting. Number one, never use Zoom to record your podcast. The sound quality is terrible, and I apologise in advance. Thing two, when your guest has got a better microphone than you, it's probably time to go and buy that microphone. And here we are. I also learn a bit about UX. How can we apply scientific thinking and rigour to UX? Do we really need to only test our product with five people? How do you do proper user research in the middle of a pandemic? Did our guest PhD thesis really inspire the work of Cambridge Analytica? For answers to all these questions and more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Dr. Nick Fine, PhD, UX thought leader, conference speaker, YouTube star, co-founder of UX Psychology, champion of scientific design and keeping users at the heart of UX. Also seemingly suggesting that UX professionals should challenge product owners. How dare they? Hi, Dr. Nick. Hi there. How are you doing? Thanks very much for having me. I'm doing very well. I hope you're doing fine on this rainy evening as well. So let's get into it. So you're involved in a lot of stuff. Obviously, you've been doing, as I said, some of the uh, conferences, circuits. We've just been talking about some of the podcasts that you've done. But what is it you do for your day job? And, uh, and how do you keep yourself busy? Sure. So my day job is I'm a, I'm a UX freelancer. I'm a contractor. Uh, traditionally, I've been doing it for about six years, but working uh, for 10 years. My first UX job was 2019, sorry, 2009. And so what I, what I do is I go around as a researcher and as a designer, as a full stack UX person, understanding the needs of the audience and then designing something and testing and iterating it until it's um, usable, workable, correct. You know, that in a nutshell, that's what I do. And that's what I've been doing for 10 years. And any UX person, or especially the old school UX people, that's what we do. These days, I tend to be a user researcher, just because research, my research skills are much in a much stronger need than my design skills. So I'm, I'm pretty much a user researcher at the moment. And uh, you say, obviously, you're a contractor. Uh, I, I looked When I looked at your LinkedIn, I, I thought that you were currently a, a, a full-time job. No, I, I finished a contract two weeks ago at the end of September with a management consultancy. I was on site at a pharma company. And I finished a couple of weeks ago, and I've just, I'm looking and been in, I mean, I'm available if anybody's watching this, but I've been <laughs> actually just been enjoying a couple of weeks off. Early in the pandemic, working with a management consultancy meant we had to move everything to remote working. All the coaching materials had to go into Miro or Mural. And that was crazy hours, long weekends, late nights, the whole thing. So I'm enjoying a, a couple of weeks of downtime. Yeah, it's good to decompress from time to time. I will say also I'm a big fan of Miro. And if anyone from Miro is listening, uh, you can put the check in the post. But it is a fantastic <laughs> tool. It is. So, yeah, you've been working in a lot of uh, contracts and some of those have been pretty short term as well. I was going to ask why you decided to settle down into a role because it did say on LinkedIn that you'd been working for Big Digital Energy for six years. Ah, yes. So Big Digital Energy is my consulting company. Uh I'm in the process of building it out to be able to offer more services directly, both in terms of training and consultancy and that kind of stuff. But I'm actually in the process of interviewing for a full-time role as a UX director somewhere. So... We have tax things changing in the new year. As you probably well know, IR35 is going to literally decimate the freelance industry, uh, ruin it. I, I suspect, I think we all suspect there's going to be an 11th hour reprieve because of the pandemic, but assuming it, it happens so that it, 
too many people have jumped out. I might try to stick around. I don't know what the shape of that is. So I'm, I might just spend the next three to four years in a, in a permanent role and let the dust settle. That's fair enough. And see, see if you can come out the other side, nice and strong. So mm-hmm. when you're, so when you're working for these companies, is it, are you kind of going and doing lots of very tactical work and solving some sort of immediate problems or are you going in there to almost as a kind of leadership consultant go in and kind of set the stage and, and, and set the companies up for sort of UX success or, or some of both? It, it, it's, all, it's always both. It's always the ratios, the balance. Um, I'm a doer. I'm a practitioner. I've made a point of staying a practitioner for 10 years. There are so few expert practitioners out here. Everybody wants to become management and spend time in meetings and that <laughs> kind of stuff that, that people, I don't know. So, so I've, I've, I've managed to cultivate this career as an expert. So I'm the guy who does stuff. I'm the guy who rolls his sleeves up. I'm the guy who goes on site and does the research. I'm the guy who is in the lab doing the user testing or even doing the wireframes. So I do all of that stuff. But in order to be able to do the stuff that I want to do, I have to do that other stuff (laughs) in order to be able to do that. There are a number of times where I don't have permission and I have to do stuff anyway because it's in the best interests of the organization I'm working for. And so far, it's always turned out well. But it, it's that balance. It's a real balancing act. I, if I had a magic wand, I'd change the industry so that I was just able to do what I do without negotiation. There's so much negotiation to do the right thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well. That's very similar in some ways to kind of more traditional product management as well. And we were discussing this before, like how how there are very lots of synergies between the two uh, disciplines. But like. There's a lot of product companies that that or companies that want to be product companies that that don't have that discipline and and again it's like trying to get that balance between just churning stuff out and uh, and and actually trying to set the stage so that you can actually make really meaningful decisions. So I can definitely uh, I can definitely feel you there. And I mean, you say you're a practitioner, so like before we get onto some of your more bigger picture work, are there any kind of key approaches that you use or any kind of techniques that you like to fall back on or do you kind of just adapt it to 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 whatever's in front of you yeah that's a great question everything that i do is adapted and i think that's what makes user research such a tricky area to get into or indeed user experience because it's all experiential it's all subjective and it all depends upon the product or project you're working on but with that said the universals obviously user centricity is an absolute north star it's a guiding light and it, it 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 affects everything that i do the other thing is, is I would consider myself a needs engineer, right? So a, a, a user needs person, because that's what I'm working with day in and day out. It might be called other things, and it might be underneath an awful lot of things, but I still need to get to it. And all of my work is working to discovering those needs, validating those needs, and then designing to those needs. So everything, yeah. So most of the research is always focused around how do I get to the real need? If you're familiar with jobs to be done, which I know you almost certainly are, um, it's that five whys yeah, type yeah, yeah. mentality. It's that going backwards. I don't. I do it in a different way, but it's exactly the same mentality, the same mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole the whole like don't come to me with solutions. God damn it, come to me with problems type uh, approach. Yeah. Yep. So one of the approaches that I've seen here 
it's quite a popular one in in certain circles these days is the the kind of design sprint approach the google ventures uh, thing have you ever have you ever done one of those because i have still yet to find anyone apart from one person who spoke about it once at a conference who's ever actually managed to do one of those and dedicate those five solid days of time which sound fantastic and amazing ways to kind of get into it and also you know come to try and align around a solution but i just i've never seen anyone manage to get that time so i've done Design sprints is one of those, it's a bit of a misnomer or it's a bit kind of lots of people is kind of, it has meaning, different meanings to different people. I've done design sprints. I haven't called them design sprints. I was actually part of a design sprint at the home office. Um, The interaction designer did a really interesting thing that I'd never experienced before. Uh, He did the group sketching thing. And I thought, what's the point in getting a project manager and delivery lead to sketch an interface or blah, blah, blah. And I went into it really skeptical, but I just went along for the ride. And actually, it was really interesting. There was some interesting stuff that came out of that. And it, w- it was true. You know, people who weren't related to a creative profession did have valuable inputs. Yes, they were drawn like garbage. But that's <laughs> not the point. The need is in the, is in the squiggle. Yeah. Like, and once you get the need out, that's the value. And, I, and the penny dropped. And I haven't done it since, but it was, it was very useful in that particular project. Um, with regards to design sprints, again, a lot of the multivariate testing work that we do with, with web analysts that's kind of design sprinty, but more at a kind of mechanical, cold level rather than a creative level. Yeah, it's interesting. I think also there's this whole idea of like, which I'm sure you're clearly aware of, of things like fat marker sketches and stuff like that, where where basically it doesn't matter what it looks like. I saw a, a, an article recently suggesting that PowerPoint was a fantastic, uh, effectively wireframing tool because anyone can use it. So anyone can just like put stuff down. Yeah, like you say, it's not going to be like a design classic. You certainly wouldn't build your website off the back of it. But at the same time, if you just want to play with information architecture and stuff like that, that it's just the democratization of it is is more than anything the, the point of that, I guess. So moving then on to some of your bigger picture stuff, and I say you're, we said before this call that you're looking to kind of change the industry and, and, and reframe what UX means to some extent. And part of that, of course, is this whole talk that you've done. I'm sure you've probably done it more than once, but I saw it on YouTube of um, scientific design. Now, I'll put a link to that, obviously, in the, in the show notes. And uh, I've watched it myself and, and found it really interesting and, and very forthright as well. Uh, but I wondered if you could, for the benefit of my listeners, to maybe get their, get their listening juices uh, flowing. Like, what? What's the elevator pitch version of that? Okay, in a nutshell, what will make anybody watching a better product person or UX person or anything else is a a greater adherence to some of these scientific principles. It's really that simple. I'm talking about validity and reliability in particular because there's a lot of work that gets done in our digital world, which is checkbox activity. Uh, It's going through the motions without really caring about whether the outputs are real are verifiable, valid, repeatable. And that's a massive problem. I've seen it a lot on my research side of things. um, And it's a much bigger problem when people are speaking to eight users and then releasing a product on on an international scale. I mean, it's such a horrible fail. And the worst part is, is that you don't see the failure for, for quite some time. There's like a delayed explosion. And then teams can change. And so these awful processes, decision making, persists. So all I'm trying to do is to be as noisy as I reasonably can and say, look, (laughs) you can still have your philosophy, your practice, your way of doing things, but you've got to build in some adherence or some respect for science. Because otherwise, how do you know whether you're doing good work or not? How do you know that you're building the right thing? 
And that's that's at the center of it. That's my elevator pitch. So scientific design and anything I'm talking about UX, all I'm doing is saying just bring, I'm not saying making it all science. I'm just saying balance it off a little bit better. Yeah, I think in the talk you mentioned probably right at the beginning that this kind of like almost like science, ah, because you know creative people, designers maybe just see that as too rigid and uh, and and too kind of structured and 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 not creative enough. I mean, and how do how do you fight against that in in your profession? Because I'm 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 assuming it comes up. Oh, all, all day, every day. And anybody who's seen <laughs> me on LinkedIn, or I've been in quite a few battles over the years, but they're not bad battles. I'm just trying to help re-educate. And it's not like I'm being too bullshy, but we have science as it's flawed, but it is the best paradigm for learning about our world reliably. Um, I don't know what happened to science literacy. The amount of <laughs> fake news and the amount of disinformation that's going on is crazy. Within digital is off the hook. So science is the antidote, both personally and professionally, to this fake news. And it helps reduce the signal to noise ratio. So that there's less BS in our world and more fact, more, more predictable outcomes or, or reliable outcomes. Right now, there's way too much management by hope. You build a thing, you release it, and you hope. And when we do that with some of these products, at zero or negative ROI, it's insane. And it happens time and time again. Now, it shouldn't, we shouldn't be in 2020 after having a relatively mature UX practice. We've been building digital products now for 20 years at least. Uh, we shouldn't be back at this point. And that's why I get quite militant and quite rude about UX UI. And that's where I tend to create enemies because <laughs> UX UI didn't help. It, it actively hamstrung our industry. It set us backwards. And that's what you're seeing now in today's world is a whole ton of designers flooding our market with design thinking and trying to subvert product and UX into a design discipline. And it can't be all design. It has to be science and design. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about sort of uh, misinformation as well, because uh, one of the things that you also mentioned was how there are quite a lot of rubbish articles on places like Medium that, that mm. kind of just uh, are not even worth reading. Now, obviously, I read a lot of product stuff on medium i write some from time to time and and i even try and read some ux stuff from time to time are there any kind of really bad examples of things that you've seen like not specifically calling out the specific specific advice that you would just say just 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 don't do i mean i literally don't read medium articles i mean (laughs) there's one i've just read because somebody said i should read it and it was a product person who's new to product who is an ex-creative director saying you are not the user in so many words. And it's like, yeah, we've been saying that for 10 years, (laughs) you know, just because it's new to you. Great. But the problem is you have all these people on medium and LinkedIn and Twitter discovering this thing that is not new, that all the UX world has been doing as standard for a decade and going, look, we've got heuristics. And it's like, Oh my God, guy. I mean, it's embarrassing (laughs) to watch it happen. Right. And this is where we're at. There's a lot of product. We were talking about this beforehand. Maybe now is the time to bring it into play. I've been doing a form of product management or product thinking for 10, 15 years now. It wasn't called product. It was called UX. and It was about making the thing work for the person that's using it. That's not dissimilar to product these days. And so there is, we're seeing in, in, the, in the past few months, maybe six months, some kind of convergence between product streams and UX streams. And, and I don't know if anybody knows what's actually happening. 
because UX user researchers and UX designers are now rebranding themselves as product researchers and product designers. So this is where it gets interesting. Yeah, so I think there's always been a certain ambiguity in my head about the difference between a UX designer and a product designer because it feels like they should be solving much the same problem. I guess one way that I've had it explained to me is that possibly incorrectly that a product designer is more about the design part and that the UX person is the person who goes and speaks to the to the people to you know, to the users. Is is that how you see it or or are they both basically the same role with different names? I, I, again, I don't really know. And <laughs> I, I, I know what I thought, but it's changing so much. Um, I, before product became product, if you know what I mean, I do. historically in universities, you had industrial product design type functions. And those guys were proper industrial designers, designing the product, doing all the research, creating the thing. But that's for fit, more physical stuff, right? Less yeah. digital. So I can see it being more of the design side, like the UX UI kind of angle. Mm-hmm. But I've also heard of product owners or product managers. And again, that's another split we need to discuss. Um, <laughs> the product person doing the research themselves. And that's another instance here of a kind of, of doing research, bringing user centricity into it, but doing it in a kind of a, a more limited way or in a way that's appropriate to that organization. Maybe it's a more of a startup, needs more hybridization of roles, et cetera. In moving forwards, the way I see the world, and I'm going to be talking at a conference next month, and this is, I think, the central slide of my whole deck, is effectively, think of product like the tier across the top, okay? Product is, is governance or ownership, or whatever, right? And that's the product person, whether it's an owner or a manager. I'm not going to split that hair right now. <laughs> that product plinth is supported by a number of pillars mm-hmm. one of those pillars is obviously research one of those pillars is design another is content another is optionally or possibly development depending upon where you're at right that's another <laughs> you know can of worms that we will leave alone um <laughs> some agile teams you have the dev in the pod other teams times you've got a dual track and you've got development and a separate track over there but it doesn't matter really. But the point being is, is that historically UX was me, right? 10 years ago, UX was me. I was the researcher and designer. I did everything. Then everything moves along. Roles split. It makes sense. It was hard to resource unicorns and all of that stuff. Now, what I think what's going to happen is you've got user research. You need research and design. Research and design effectively form the, the core, the nucleus of UX. UX was one of the pillars. Mm-hmm. UX is now everybody's, right? However, the UX people, the, re- the researcher or the designer, are still UX, but they're contributing to UX through their practice, right? And the product manager effectively owns the experience. So I see my role moving forwards as respectfully subservient to the product manager. I mean, I'm, I mean that in the nicest possible way. I know because lots of people got ego about this. This is about knowing your place in the chain of command. And in the digital product chain of command, if user research isn't uh, owning the experience anymore, then the product manager does. And we all support the product manager through our various practices to achieve your roadmap goals or whatever your objectives are. Yeah, That's I think- how I see things, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, there's some really good points in there. I think from my perspective, you know, we all like to think of cross-functional egalitarian teams and, and, I, and, I, and I actually genuinely believe that that's the best way to, to get stuff done. 
and, and no one should really feel that they're subservient to anyone day to day. But there is what I like to call like a decision hierarchy. So ultimately, the the, the product the product manager, I'm I'm going to say product manager, not owner. For me, product owner is a scrum role, and that is a very valid scrum role. But a product okay. manager is a job. And I've had chats with other product pros who, who who really dislike product owner being kind of seen as a junior product manager. So that's that's not the way it should be. I mean, ultimately. It is the way it is in some companies, but ultimately, if you're a product manager, you should manage your product. And going back to that decision hierarchy, yeah, sure, someone is there to ultimately make a call if it needs to be made. But that should be a ideally a call that's made through consensus and kind of group buy-in as much as possible and facilitated as such. But I'm sure that there are <laughs> sure there are times that that works better than others. But that but that's the principle. I mean, so certainly in our organisation, as as we were discussing earlier, you know, we've got. Um, one UX uh, designer who is uh, who, who reports in, into me. So technically speaking, uh, UX is part of product. I've seen other organizations where UX is a completely separate function. I'm sure that there are pros and cons to both, but I think as long as we're all aligning around, around the same principles, I guess, and making sure that, as I know that you would propose and be a proponent of, that the user is genuinely at the center of everything and that like you again, as you say, the jobs to be done and, and the, the kind of the, the five wires and all these different wonderful ways to, to winkle out the actual problem versus just sitting there and dictating, I'm going to put that button there because I, I think that's great. I think that that's, that's the kind of cultural thing, I guess, that you'd want to go for. So making sure that everyone's sticking to the same principles, even if people have different specialties around the same, you know, around that. Yeah, but this is where UX UI and some of the visual stuff has really broken our direction of travel. Because again, the example you gave was a really visual one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can accept that because lots of people think that UX is a UI profession, but actually it's a behavioral profession, or at least that's my perspective. I know I'm a psychologist and therefore I'm highly biased, but the digital world has had design. It's got design. We've got multiple different forms of design. The digital world wasn't lacking more designers. <laughs> we needed more research and more behaviorally based design. And in order to do that, UX was a behavioral, before the gold rush, was a behavioral practice. It was all about users. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't involving users, you weren't doing UX. Whereas nowadays, that UX UI thing is, is interface design, visual design. It's not necessarily UX, or not not according to those definitions, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I do know what I mean, and I do agree. I think that uh, one of the main reasons that, that we um, you know, recently brought a UX uh, pro on board was to make sure that we could have someone who could go and cover that, that user side of things, because ultimately, yeah, it shouldn't just be about design. And I've worked with different types of UX designers in the past, and, and some of them have been very design-focused, and, and some of them have absolutely almost been militantly anti-design and 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 you know there, there's there's definitely benefits and pros and cons to each approach but yeah i think it's absolutely critical to to not just see things as like yeah drawing a nice graphic on a screen it's it's that's part of it but also there's there's things like information architecture which i'm really um really keen on you know making sure that we're actually laying stuff out in a way that's most meaningful to users and also another thing that i know you touched on in in your talk was about um kind of accessibility as well and making sure that, that we're building accessible experiences for people rather than you know just just everything being about kind of whiz and pop and stuff like that which is yes really important and that's a really good point because talking about whiz and pop you're talking about you know innovation new features 
But actually, some of the most sexiest stuff is in the business as usual type stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, no one thinks of it because everyone goes, oh, I'm really sorry, Nick. I'm going to put you on a BAU product project. I don't find that like, a, like oh, no, I want to be on the sexy. <laughs> getting BAU, getting core functionality right is amazing. And once you get some of those core, what I call golden journeys, mm-hmm. um, nailed, and that might be an onboarding journey, a renewal journey, whatever those journeys are, that's where you make your real money. And, and, and the people don't understand that. They, they think, let's just put out a new sexy function and then we can market it. You're missing the point. You've got a whole bunch of installed users already, typically. If you keep them happy, your churn drops, you know, your re- revenues, your, margin, your margins go up. It's all a good thing. So I've spent the past few days fighting with both an Amazon Echo and a Google uh, <laughs> Earth because I've been using them for a long time now. Some of the critical journeys for those products are shocking absolutely terrible for both of them i'm not pointing the finger at anyone i i jumped from one to the other and i've been flip-flopping trying to get my getting my needs met and between the two of these products i can't so now some of that's rampant commercialism and some of it's just no one's looked at it in a decade go and look at amazon's help system it literally hasn't been touched since the 90s yeah i think there's always this as you as you put it, like almost like a bias for for trying to impress people with new stuff. I think one of the things, I know, and I know that you hate market research um, from your previous uh, from our previous discussion. Now I worked in market research for a number of years, and uh, one of the things that was very prevalent in that industry, it's kind of still very UX related, is so they, like for online surveys and stuff like that. There's this whole uh, craze about uh, gamification. Yep, I remember uh, well. And yeah, and this whole idea that, you know, everything has to be like a card sorting exercise now, or everything has to be like a drag and drop exercise or like a rotating minority report style thing <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And it's like, I'll put my hands up. We were completely guilty of, of falling for that and, and basically just answering people's requests for that for, for a time from a technical perspective. But I then remember speaking to a to a guy who sounds like you'd probably get on with quite well. Uh, very very um, sort of user focused um, sort of psychology PhD himself, I think, based in the US, who did had done loads of kind of fundamental research on like interactions with with users. And um, his point was that every single thing that you do like this, or every single gamified thing that you put on the screen, is adding to the cognitive load of a user who already has established design patterns for a number of different things that you're asking them to do. So stop doing that thing. Just ask them the thing in the, the, the way that is simplest for them to, to, to answer it because that's where you're going to get the best results and then start showing loads of charts and stuff about how that was uh, you know, backed up by science. But I think it was a really interesting point because there's, there's so much of this kind of you know, flashy lights and I'm, I'm literally talking about flash and in Adobe Flash back in the day. Uh, and and just complete overuse of it, and I think that's uh, to your point. Simplicity is really key in these in, in these areas, and just getting the getting the fundamentals right. But you know what's important? So a big deal for me is is personalization, and it, it's much less sexy these days. But it's always there, like electricity. Maybe um, <laughs> personalization is saying that everybody keep it simple. No one likes gamification. Is is better than just giving everybody gamification? But actually, some people do want gamification. Some people don't. And that's what it's about. That's why UX is so nuanced, because yeah. it isn't one size fits all. We do have the technology to vary the experience to make it personally relevant. Yes, we've got privacy issues going crazy, uh, and that's going to be an ongoing fight. But the, the new world moving forwards is a much more personally relevant world, and we can use the Internet of Things and all kinds of other predictive modeling and behavioral modeling to be able to 
present you that experience that's right for you in particular and me in particular. We shouldn't have to share it. You know, that's general UI stuff. It's still around, but it will with skinning and changeable user interfaces means that we, we can have more, more personal stuff. So one of the things that, that you were speaking about, again, I think on the talk was about how you need to, you need to push for diversity and, and make sure you're testing with lots of different groups and that you can't just get one visually yes. impaired person to uh, kind of review a design or something like that and that you have to you know, really kind of cast the net wide. Now, on the other hand, you have people like the Nielsen Norman group who say that you actually only need to test with five people and anything <laughs> above that is completely pointless. Um, all the time. I was going to say, so how, how do you square yeah. that circle? Are they wrong? No, they're not wrong. And anybody pointing the finger at Norman Nielsen would be an idiot, and I would be an idiot to do that. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I've got it on my desktop. I can share my screen and show you the original paper right now because I, I get asked <laughs> this so much that it's literally to hand. It's based on a 1993 paper. Now, the web th- that it was based around in 1993, uh, the Mozilla Netscape world, if you remember it at all. I do. Um, that's long gone, right? So on the basis of that alone, I would question applying that level of insight to today's technology. But that said, let's just accept that it's true. If you're going to test with 8 to 12 users because that gets 80% of the major problems, right? That's 80% of the major problems. Number one, what about 20% of the not caught major problems, right? What about the 100% of minor problems, right number two imagine you're apple or you're some big in you know google you're a multi international big brand a pharma company what have you um do you think apple test product with five people eight people <laughs> do you think probably not no right so people are taking inexperienced people in our industry are taking that and they, they want this rule book, which I keep telling you there is no rule book, but they want a rule that says, how many people do I use? So they're using eight to 12. They're getting a really skewed sample and they're building the wrong thing as a result of it. And so all my point was on that talk was it's basic science. It's basic psychology 101. Basic research is diversify your sample, have it as closely representing your wider audience as you humanly can, i.e. it's meant to be a truly representative sample. And one of the things that I preach all the time is don't be afraid to repeat. In fact, you should repeat. This one hit deal of eight people, and I got it right the first time, is crazy, right? That's just not realistic. So it, if you do a piece of work and I do a piece of work with the same sort of people, we should get similar sorts of insights. I guarantee you, for most of the work that I see, it is, does not have any test or retest reliability. And then we build public services and products from this, which it's not okay. And that's why I'm shouting as loud as I am about science, <laughs> because it just means that you and I, we will be using better products and having a better life. It's really just that simple. That makes sense. But part of that, obviously, as well, is involves actually doing interviews with people and, and, and doing some of the traditional sort of user research, which I assume at the moment is relatively challenging. Yep. Um, so I wondered if there are kind of any approaches or tools that you've used to adapt. I mean, obviously, we mentioned Miro earlier as, as, as yep. a collaboration tool, but are there any other tools or types of tools that you've yep. started to use? So, I mean, re- remote research has been a special, specialist subject of mine for a long time. It, my PhD thesis is all about remote research uh, and how do you 
use log file recording, et cetera, to understand behavior. And the same thing is kind of going on today. Now, the tools that I use are simply Teams or Zoom or anything, a video conferencing uh, uh, tool to be able to, as we are doing now, we can share the screen. I can ask you to buy a pair of shoes or whatever the thing is that I need you to do uh, remotely. I can understand you. Where it all falls down and where, where the pandemic has really destroyed it is the physicality and the social distancing. Um, ethnography is still in play because you can still stand around with your mask on somewhere. That's always been a minor or low volume methodology. But contextual inquiry is all off the cards because people aren't in their offices. People aren't, you know, they are in shops, but they're limited and behavior has changed and there's one way systems, all kinds of stuff going on. So for at the moment, and we're only, what, nine months into the pandemic or something, six months in? Six, seven, yeah. Six, six yeah, something about that. All the research that I've been doing has been strictly Teams-based or, or, or Zoom-based. I haven't done any physical research. I haven't done any observational research. One of the things I want to mention, that research, and one of the reasons why I dislike market research, or at least <laughs> the reason why I'm trying to distinguish user research from it is we do a lot of behavioral observation. It's not just self-reporting, asking people to fill in a form or a survey or a poll or a pilot uh, um, or a, a focus group panels. I tend to dislike all of those. I, I occasionally use them, but behavior is honest. Behavior is much more reliable. I can design to, to needs that I've got from behavior. So the classic example is I'm in the UX lab or I'm doing a, a user testing session. And I've said to somebody, can you buy a pair of red shoes for me, please? And they've had a really difficult time buying the red shoes um, in the end, I need to help them. I show them where the red shoes are, etc. At the end of the session, I usually have a sweep up question. How did you find that? If you had a magic wand, all of that. Usually they will say, Nick, that was great. I loved it. It was brilliant. Really easy. Fantastic. Well done. But actually, I've just watched them for 10 minutes failing to do the basic <laughs> thing I asked them to do. So what people say and what they do are usually very, very different things. And so that's where the naive user researcher or market researcher and the experienced professional researcher, shall we say, that's the difference. That's one of the major differences is, is that, that, that rigor, that striving for validity, not accepting things on face value. Yeah, it's funny. That reminds me of a book I read relatively recently called The Mom Test. I don't know if you've seen it. It's basically just talking about how the, you can't just ask people if they like something effectively because they're going to lie to you because they don't want to hurt your feelings. Exactly that. Um, so it sounds like you'd probably get on with that that guy quite well. My, my script uh, that I use says, I didn't design this. Don't worry. You can be as honest as you like. You won't <laughs> hurt my feelings. It actually says that every single time. Of the thousands of people I've spoken to, they've all heard me say that line. <laughs> Listen, there's a, there's a psychological phenomenon, should we say. It's called acquiescence. We want to be good guinea pigs, in essence. And that's all it is. It's just, you know, and it, we're British. We're British guinea pigs. So we're, we're even worse at it. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a certain ambiguity about being British and just like wanting not to hurt anyone's feelings. I think, it, as you say, it's natural for probably everyone, but but yeah, we're we're terrible at it, and it, and it makes it difficult to to make hard decisions, uh, which is which is like part of the challenge, I guess. So your PhD, personalizing interaction using user interface skins. Yes. Now, first of all, I'm gonna gonna take a bet that that's pretty involved but then i guess it is a phd but you also say that it helped inspire cambridge analytica 
Yes. So, yes, it did. I don't know to what extent. <laughs> so I won't bore anybody with my PhD research because that's a good way to go to sleep. But my <laughs> PhD was actually quite interesting. Long story short, I was all about personality, right? And how do you personalize by personality? So we talked before about one size doesn't fit all while using the same UI as me. Well, I was all about how do I reskin an interface according to a personality? To cut the long story short, in order to be able to maybe design an app or an experience that was based around a personality, I can't expect you or anybody to fill in a 120 item psychometric test first. So I managed to work out a way of understanding people's, deducing people's or predicting people's personality traits from the way they interact with a keyboard and mouse through things like interclick times and all kinds of stuff. Nice. So was that very data science driven as well? Did you have to do lots of modeling and stuff around that? Very, very heavy. Very, I mean, pure pure data science, lots of modeling predictions. I only got mine to about 50% accuracy. So 50% of the time I could, I could get a, I, I could guess what your personality trait was correctly. I was working in 2004, 2005. I didn't have the benefit of Facebook or recruitment or social networks. I had to run around and get people, you know, the old school way of doing things. Cut forward to Cambridge Analytica and Alexander Kogan. He was doing exactly the same work as me, predicting personality from interaction with your newsfeed, effectively, on on Facebook. And he was getting 98 plus percent accuracy, or maybe more. But because he had a, a power base of, I don't know, several million users, and I had a couple of hundred. So my statistical power, the joke that I make is, is that when you've got that much statistical power, you can find Elvis or Tupac or you can see in the dark. You know what I mean? You've got so much power. And it, that's a, a latter-day thing because you've got crowdsourcing of, of your participants. So you were using the power for good, but he turned to the dark side. Well, I don't think he turned to the dark side. I think Facebook probably used his work for dark. Privacy is the big sticking point. You know, that's going to be an ongoing fight. If, if we didn't have privacy concerns, we could provide the most incredibly personally relevant interactions. You could design amazing products. Amazing. But you know, you've got this little minor problem called privacy. And GDPR and all the rest. So what are some of the key trends we should be looking out for in UX then from your perspective? I know you say also you're kind of interested in futurology and stuff like that. So yeah. what's, what, what's coming up? I, I, honestly, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I'd like to believe that one of the ways forward is, is a much deeper behavioral science approach in digital. Because historically, it's my belief that digital has grown with marketing thinking rather than an IT mindset. So digital is no more than a glorified extension of marketing these days. And that's a pretty, pretty radical thing to say. I, I don't fully believe that myself, but you get this <laughs> sense of what I'm saying, right? Whereas IT is much more matter of fact, you know, have you got it? Can you evidence it? All kinds of stuff. So I want to shift more towards IT thinking, but still maintaining that creativity and that kind of hipness that the digital has. But we need to grow up a bit, if I'm brutally honest. And that growing up is bringing the science in, bringing a bit more behavior in. And then once we become less of a, I know what my audience thinks and I'm going to scattergun them to death. Once we become less like that, we will become a maturer digital industry and product, UX, design, all of it. 
just improves as a result of it. But we're all hamstrung by that, right? Well, limited by that right now. We've all had marketing directors saying J- J- JFDI, and that doesn't that doesn't drive doesn't drive the numbers we need. That that definitely does happen. So I've heard. I would never ever criticise <laughs> any of my colleagues, past and present, just in case they ever listen to this. So one of your rules is you could be wrong. Yeah. What was the worst example of you yourself being wrong? That's a great question. I'm wrong every single time I'm in the lab. That's a really genuine. I'm always surprised by what people say. I'm always learning new things. When I was a younger man, I I thought, oh, you stupid idiots or something in my head. But nowadays, I re- you just you suddenly realize you just you know so little. It doesn't matter how much you know. I'm always constantly learning and I'm always being educated by the audience. Specifics, where have I got it really wrong? And what can I tell you that I... <laughs> I was going to say, you don't have to throw yourself uh, into the fire. No, no, no. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I haven't got it that wrong too many times, not because I'm good, but because science and checking yourself keeps you safe, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. So it's, it's, I, I come from that world of, of not making mistakes. I, I, I do make mistakes all day and every day. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'm very sorry. That's good. No, I think there's this whole idea as well that like, there are mistakes and there are mistakes, right? And where can people find you? Where's the best place for them to, to come and find out about the, uh, all the UX wisdom that you can bestow? So um, I, I tend to live on LinkedIn the most because I like it because you can have discussions and chats and you can get into stuff, whereas Twitter, it just it goes too quickly. I can't really have a conversation. It's like a, a rapidly scrolling thing. Um, so LinkedIn is probably the best place. Um, I'm at a conference next month. There's a company called Tech Circus. You may have n- know of them. Next month, they have the Global Experience Summit, and it has three different streams, a UX stream, a product stream, and a CX stream. So um, I'm talking on the UX one, and I've got a couple of colleagues who are speaking on the product one. Um, that'll be a good place to go. I'm, my talk is going to be all about some of the stuff we've talked about today, about the intersection of product and UX. Nice. I think uh, I'll try and dig out a link and put that in the show notes. And if anything, it would be amazing to think that one day we could watch all of those at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it's been a fantastic chat and uh, great to get, uh, first of all, a look at your Star Wars memorabilia. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and also just to, to really dig into the fundamentals of UX. And uh, let's keep in touch. And um, thanks very much for spending the time. Thank you very much for having me. Really good. As ever, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show today, I'd love it if you left a review, shared it with your friends, subscribed or followed the show on Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn. I've also got a mailing list which will send exactly one message a week with a summary of the latest show and any other quality product content that's piqued my attention over the last week. If that sounds good, sign up at onenightinproduct.com and that's night with a K. Thank you very much.